This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Looking forward to this episode a lot. We've just gone through ASX reporting season, and we've got an expert here to help us make sense of it all. And then towards the back end of the interview, we're going to talk about finding truly great long-term businesses, the true goal of this podcast and, you know, the community. So I think uh, I'm going to get a lot out of this conversation. Likewise, it is our pleasure uh, to welcome uh, Rudy Philippek van Dyke to the show. Welcome, Rudy. Well, uh, all of a sudden, I'm interested too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. So Rudy is uh, the editor and founder of FN Arena, founded back in 2002. And if you recall the episodes we did on reporting season, all of the data and info that we used in that we got from FN Arena. So that offer is still available if you would like to test Rudy's full service for four weeks for free. Just mention Equity Mates when you sign up in the box. Anyway, back to Rudy. He successfully built up an online financial services in the Netherlands and uh, has now focused his attention back on FN Arena, which is a website that provides uh, research on Australian equities and we're very excited to dig into his great mind and uh, understand a lot more about it. So Rudy, as I said, welcome to the show. I hope I brought my mind along. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you have. (laughs) So Rudy, before we get into all of that, we do like to start these interviews with a bit of a game Hmm. uh, where we throw out a a topic or an index or something and we get your thoughts on whether it's overrated or underrated. Okay, I'll I'll let you know now. I'm I'm terrible at timing. (laughs) That's all right. So is Bryce. Um, <laughs> Underrated. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> so we'll, we'll kick off. We've just got a few today, but we'll start with index investing. Overrated or underrated? Underrated. And uh, why is that? Most investors will find it very, very difficult to continuously outperform the index on a consistent basis. That in particular applies to professional fund managers. I hope we're all aware. We're all aware about that. Uh, that nobody talks about it, but we, we are aware of that. That famous bet that uh, Warren Buffett took on with a with a fund manager, basically with a hedge fund, and said like, "You might be able to to beat the index, but not after fees." Mm. And uh, he won that bet. Yeah. I mean, and that basically goes for 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 the, for the whole industry, basically. Mm. So the, the big message to everyone who has had a good year this year is that uh, enjoy it while it lasts. I mean, <laughs> uh, the share market is, is sometimes very accommodative 
and it can be very unaccommodative at other times. And mm. that's just how it works. I mean, the share market basically is, is, is this beast that allows us to do whatever we do, and other times it won't allow anything. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy it while it lasts. A bit of an ominous tone to start this interview. <laughs> Overrated or underrated, the Australian residential property market? Oh, that's a good one. Probably overrated, but Australia has a, a very a particular uh, environment, a very particular uh, set of dynamics. And that has, in particular over the past two decades or so, has served everyone quite well in property. But I think the whole property thing is, is very much overhyped. And the industry itself want, wants to overhype it, of course. And I mean, um, in, in this particular um, period like one of the things that's that, that's all i mean they they do not report a lot of data which doesn't doesn't serve the cause mm, right mm. and if you if you lend your ear to the right type of of expert in the market you know there's a lot of people who actually don't make money out of property right if if you have to take into account the money you spend on upgrading your house the inflation that that you take into account as well and the fact that maybe you spend a lot of hours on on doing it yourself then often you're kidding yourself yeah as an investment but anyway i mean we are very good at kidding ourselves we humans i mean <laughs> and i think i think property is one of those is one of those ways in which you can you can see that but um um globally there are plenty of times plenty of markets where people uh, actually lose money i mean I remember about 15 years ago, I, um, I read a study about, at that time, about the Swiss property market, and that hadn't moved for two decades Wow! at that time. So people were not that keen in putting their money in property there, unless they wanted to live in one, uh, but as an investment was absolutely not, not interested because it didn't move, mm. right? If it doesn't move for two decades, nobody's interested. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. The last one, now this is an asset class that definitely has been moving over the last few years. Uh, overrated or underrated? Bitcoin. Overrated. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, why is that? I think people misunderstand what Bitcoin will stand and misunderstand what will happen in, in the future. Everyone who buys it as a as a anti-system asset is going to be surprised by when what happens when, when the system actually fights back. And you will see now that um, central banks globally, at some point, will will introduce their own e-currencies. Let's call them like that, and that basically will will mean that uh, there will be no place for Bitcoin. And there's two reasons for that. One is, of course, when uh, central bankers um, uh, launch like an e-euro, e-Australian dollar, etc., those will be official, and those will be the ones that everyone uses, basically, from business to governments to taxpayers, you name it. So who's going to use Bitcoin then? The other element, of course, is, is that central bankers who are working on those e-currencies are uh, very much focused on the stability of those currencies, which is the reason why they will probably be launched locally, domestically first, and then test them out for a while, find ways to keep them stable, and then connect them internationally. The big question mark, which I always had for Bitcoin, is how can an asset and they call it the currency, but it's actually I mean, an asset, that goes from zero to 20,000, back to 4,000, back to 10,000, back to 6,000, back, back to 12,000. How can that be used as a stable means of exchange of anything other than speculation? And that will be the downfall of Bitcoin. 
Well, I'm long Bitcoin, so. <laughs> do, do you want to have the argument? Or? No, no, no. It's purely a hedge. It's a hedge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not a lot long, that's, that's for sure. So, Rudy, before we get into, as Alex said, COVID reporting season and then unpacking the search for long-term successful businesses, we always love to get the story of our guest's first investment. So how about we start there? Are you able to share the story of your first investment and perhaps any major lessons that you've learned from it that are still carried through to today? I think this might, it's going to be my first surprise of the day, I think. Everyone who pays attention to the detail will, will notice I, I'm missing a piece of my finger. Yeah, I did notice that. And that's basically the story of my first investment. I lost my finger in an accident. I was nine years old. First lesson learned, insurance companies don't want to pay out. So I ultimately got a very small payout, and that was uh, money I, I could only access after I became 21, and I was nine at the time. So my first investment went into some kind of a banking product, which gave me, at the time, 15% interest. Wow. Jeez, wow. must be nice. Unheard of. <laughs> which even me being 10 years old or so, 11 years old, 12 years old, whatever, I thought that was quite a, quite a cool yeah. uh, interest. <laughs> but obviously, it took me... Took me many, many, many more years to realize that that was actually not a good thing. But uh, it, it, it gives you an insight about this is the 80s, I mean, how high inflation was, how high bond yields were, and how high the interest was that if you put your money in the bank. Mm. Uh, and obviously, uh, times have changed dramatically. And those were not good times for the share market, by the way. In that environment, uh, shares don't really, don't really thrive. Yeah, well, who would who would put your money in shares when you can get fifteen percent in the bank? <laughs> but you have to realize that I mean, if if you get fifteen percent in the bank, it probably means that inflation is thirteen or fourteen percent mm. as well. So you're not actually on on net base. You're actually not making money. It's just a another one the way we delude ourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so from there to now, you've obviously had a a long career, you know, studying financial markets and companies and and um, all of that. Have you developed a personal investing philosophy? I think so, yes. By the way, thanks for giving away my age. Well, at, least, at least a suggestion <laughs> of. People can do maths, you said nine years old in the 80s. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I lied. That was in the 70s. <laughs> See, I was always lying about my age. Uh, the philosophy, yes. Uh, I've, actually, I've actually learned by doing this that um, quality is, in the end, what, what gets you through, through times through tough times and through, through good times. I'm certain we will we'll talk about it uh, a little bit more uh, in, in later topics, but it's also one of the things I think is very difficult for investors because if you listen to the commentary and you read things about the investing in share market, everyone has a different definition about quality. I mean, not that it, it's, it's, it's one of those words that's just being used. Yeah, you know? Everyone has quality. Right? Yeah. By default, nothing becomes quality. Yeah. Mm. So that's difficulty number one. And difficulty number two is that everyone is, is always... Um, interested in, in or very much focused on what, what's happening in the immediate, what is happening now. And, and then the eternal question comes, Rudy, if it's such a good stock, how come the share price is falling? Mm -hmm. right? And that's the always the eternal question. You go like, well, and then you start talking about it. Not everything is intelligent that happens in the share market and all of that. <laughs> and then people look at you and they go like, what's he talking about? And I go, I'm still talking about the share market, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the difficulty. But and my analysis, my research has led me to re-emphasizing and actually really, really focus on quality. And I'm trying to get that message across to, uh, to investors as well. 
So we'll hold off on asking what your definition of quality is until (laughs) we get to that part of the conversation. So if people want to know, they're going to have to keep listening. (laughs) Well, maybe I should tell people what what is not quality. Sure, sure. See, a Telstra share price that peaked in 1999 and today is is about 70% lower. See, that's not quality. An AMP share price that uh, peaked, I think, from memory in 1999 or 2000 as well, at around $21, $22. Today it's $1 something. See, that's not quality. So it's easy to point out what what isn't. And and people are always surprised. How do you know? Well, you just look at the long term. Mm -hmm. A good company appreciates in time. It It doesn't fall by 70%. So before we do dig in further, let's just uh, take a step back and chat about FN Arena because some of the stuff you're doing there is is awesome. But I think I'm particularly interested in the why behind FN Arena sort of really aligns with what we're trying to do at Equity Mates. And, you know, we were discussing off air about the innovative process that you're going through and that sort of stuff. So why did you start FN Arena and sort of what is your philosophy and what does it offer? First of all, there's, there's a personal reason. Um, I mean, I built a new service in the Netherlands, but I'm actually born in Belgium. So I, I migrated to the Netherlands, uh, published my own newspapers. Then I started um, chasing criminals. As you do. As a, as a journalist? Or? <laughs> yeah, as a journalist. Okay. As a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Really as the a cream catcher. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Private <laughs> investigator over here. <laughs> Man, make the world better. Start, 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 start with some action. Yeah. <laughs> and I ultimately, uh, I ultimately um, was, was lucky enough that uh, at the very early stages of... This, is, this might be very difficult for you guys to, to, to comprehend, but... In the mid '90s, the internet was pretty much very new and hidden for most of, for most large parts of the population. I mean, and, and I was all, I saw the potential. I was interested. I got the, the opportunity to build a new service, the first one in the Netherlands on the internet, and that obviously I thought that's a I mean, it's a great great chance to do it. But uh, after five years, I'd uh, I'd build it out until the number three player in the country, and then I decided we're going to do something else. So I moved to Australia. You didn't want to go for number one, and um, <laughs> I thought I've, I thought I thought I've done my dough. Right? <laughs> and the irony was that in Australia, the recession it sort of was a recession. Officially, it wasn't, but in practice, it was. After the Nasdaq meltdown, nothing much happened here for a while. And in that period, I found myself here as a as an experienced uh, finance journalist, and nobody was waiting for me. Um, so I had a few let's call them corporate accidents with people trying to trying to do stuff and it didn't really work out. And then I decided, you know what, I'm just going to, and I'm not going to wait for it anymore. I'm just going to do something myself. So I started FN Arena at that, at that point in time. And there's a little bit of a Robin Hood feel to it. When I was in the Netherlands, when I did the news service, one of the, one of the things I picked up in those days, the, the, the big American firms were coming to Europe and, and issuing research on, on European stocks. Every time the guys like Merrill Lynch or whatever opened research or upgraded, downgraded, had a big impact on stock prices. I mean, could could be could be up seven percent on a day or whatever. Coming to Australia, I noticed all these stockbrokers here were, were exchanging research amongst themselves and keeping it to themselves and for their customers. So I thought, like, oh, that's a bit. Uh, I mean, let's let's make that transparent. Mm-hmm. So I made sure I had my finger in the merry-go-round loop, and I started um, doing the Australian broker call which basically gave investors an insight in what those stockbrokers were telling their customers. And that then ultimately became a whole website, a whole service, and we just built that out. Then the GFC came along, 
And upon that point, we were we were simply communicating what the experts were saying and all of that. But then the GFC came along and all those experts, they were staring like a deer in the light, not knowing what to do. And I thought, I have no business anymore. I had to basically jump into, uh, in, into the limelight and starting to tell investors what they should do. First thing, sell your banks, right? And I was one of the first and one of the only one, one of the few in Australia who actually said, sell your banks. Yeah? Everyone said, like, but everyone else says it's okay. I go like, no, it's not going to be okay. <laughs> and I sort of, man, sell the banks was, was the first big call. The other one was uh, sell energy stocks when, when oil went to uh, $130 in, in uh, uh, May or June 2008. Again, uh, one of the very few who, uh, who saw what was coming. So those are those points where you realize that up until that point, if you read enough, you, read, you know that stuff. Up until that point, every time the oil price doubles in a, in a very short time span, you get an economic recession because economies can't cope with that. Yeah? Yet in 2008, it happened, and absolutely nobody was talking about the recession. And I thought like, who's crazy here? Is it me or is it the market? Right? It turns out it was the market because we did get a recession. Right? It's just that when oil prices kept on going up, nobody was talking about the recession. Right? So um, I made a little bit of a, of a name in 2008 with, uh, with making those calls and, they, and luckily they, they got some uh, um, coverage, coverage and the likes of the Australian and stuff like that. I used the GFC to, uh, to dig deeper into research and my research then led me to the conclusion that not all stocks are equal. And, and some stocks uh, in the GFC did not drop by 50, 60, 70%. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other stocks did well. And so I tried to figure out, like, what is the difference? Why does one, one stock drop by 80% or the business goes out of business or whatever? And the other ones are just, I mean, pretending like nothing happened. And from that came the, uh, the concept I developed, which, which I call all-weather stocks. And we'll, we'll talk about it later, but, uh, and that's basically my, my first realization that not all stocks are equal and some stocks are a lot better than other stocks and, and there's a lot more quality there than, and, and those stocks you can trust mm. essentially. Mm. And from that onwards, I guess one of the things that has happened since is that while a lot of investors were very skeptical when I started writing in that way, because like, yeah, right. I mean, not all stocks are equal. <laughs> Let me tell, tell me something new. But I guess a decade later, many, many investors have now caught up with the fact that, that, I'm, that I was right. My research has, has some validity to it. I'm very proud of the fact that a lot of investors now have portfolios or half of their portfolios or part of their portfolios with stocks that they would otherwise not even looked at. Yeah. And, uh, and then, I mean, I get on a regular basis, I get messages or emails and they say like, I mean, without you, Rudy, I would have never thought about these stocks. And now they go like, and you've, like, you've changed my, my whole view on the share market. Mm. So this is probably a good point to remind people that if they want a month free of <laughs> FN Arena, <laughs> uh, go to fnarena.com and uh, make sure you, you say that Equity Mate sent you and you'll get a month free. That's true. I have to do it <laughs> manually though, but if you say Equity Mate, you get a whole month. <laughs> flood him. Flood so him. you heard how Rudy did during the GFC. So you want to you wanna have your finger on that pulse. So go and sign up. But one thing that we uh, particularly like about FN Arena is your coverage of reporting season. Mm. And we're keen to unpack some of that and, you know, learn from some of your insights there. But I guess if we do this sequentially, COVID hit a little bit before then, and we've seen a pretty unbelievable six months, both in the 
crash to March and then the recovery since. So I guess if if we maybe start general, what have your biggest takeaways been during this COVID period? It's probably good to point out here that in 2019, the two reporting seasons, the main reporting season are February and, and August, and we have companies in between, but people usually don't pay attention to those or not too much. In 2019, we had probably the worst reporting season in Australia post-TFC. So to my conclusion, and, and, and maybe good to explain it to people as well, everyone always has a different view of how they look at the reporting season. And, and the price action in the reporting season doesn't always tell you the story. As a matter of fact, it, it usually doesn't. The way we look at the reporting season is you have you have expectations that are being put forward by the analysts, and then the company comes out, and then how does that relate to the expectations? Because one of the things I've learned by doing FN Arena, and this is the funny thing as well, you, you've, you, you asked me earlier, why did I start up FN Arena? The funny thing is that I've since gone through my own journey in analyzing and researching the share market. And I'm using it with the same tools as I developed for investors on FN Arena. So when I want to analyze the reporting season, I use the same data that are available on the website. And, and, and that's I mean, it's there for me and it's there for other, for other people. So what I've learned over the years of doing this, the outcome from the reporting season is very much in how what the businesses d- decide to announce in that month, how that impacts on the the forecasts put forward by analysts. So everyone's always critical about these analysts. Oh, they're always wrong, and that's true, and they're, and they're always late, which is also true, and they're always biased, which is probably also true. But the matter of fact is. When they change their forecasts, that is the guideline for the share price. So it's not that difficult to understand or to predict which stocks are going to be higher in three months' time and which stocks are going to be lower. Resmet, for example, disappointed in August. Share price hasn't moved since. And that's for that particular reason. Other stocks have, have done better and share price is more than likely is higher. Right? And that's on that simple metrics, that's how it works. And it doesn't mean that a company that comes out with a 250% growth, for example, has done better than expected. That's the, that's the element that investors have to catch up on. You also have to ask if a company grows by 250% and it might have missed expectation and the share price temporarily comes under pressure, whether that's a bad thing in itself. Right? Because if it keeps on growing in that phase, the share price will take care of itself. So that's the the long and the short of it. Coming back to your question, we had the worst reporting seasons, February and and in particular August in 2019, whereby one of the predictions we made at FN Arena is if you're a typical dividend investor, start getting worried, be afraid. And we could tell that because we were paying attention to what was happening in in the reporting season. And we we could tell that most businesses could hardly meet expectations and they would really have to put everything they had to meet expectations and you can sort of see the cracks starting to appearing so i mean typically for australian companies they the last thing they will do is cut dividends i mean but they so exactly and i mean they'll but it started happening basically and you will find for example after august last year in, in 2019 the cyclicals the energy companies and the banks started cutting their dividends i mean and then, of course, you get the pandemic. I mean, and as you can also see from my from my presentations as well, Australia has been much heavier hit 
important than internationally. And that is because of the combination of a very bad reporting seasons in 2019. So they're basically holding on with everything they have and they can't really do it. And then, of course, more bad news means they just have to cut their dividends and much more in a much more heavy handed way than otherwise would have been the case. So you see, if you pay attention, you see those things coming. Right? And I remember when I gave presentations post reporting season 2019, many people got really quiet when I said it because they all thought like, yeah, but I own these stocks. Yeah? I need my dividends. Right? I need my franking credits. And I was saying, well, you're going to be hit. Right? It's happening. So then obviously the pandemic hits and it, and they, I mean, and we, it's really, I mean, it's a big hit. But then August we just had is on those metrics, probably the best supporting season we had in Australia since, since the GFC, right? So you go from worst to bad, uh, if not actually all the way around, you go from, from the worst to the, to, the, to the best. And that is, again, because analysts who are analyzing those companies from the outside, they have no idea how much a company can do from the inside to lower their costs. And that was basically the big surprise. I mean, companies were able to lower their costs much further than analysts from the outside thought they could. And those were, the big, those were surprises in a way. I mean, profits are sometimes still down by half, mm. but they, they were expected to be, to be down by 60% or 70%, so they, they did actually perform better. The other element is that's also typical about the share market and one of the reasons why I, I personally wasn't that worried about sell downs in August. Everyone was going, oh, we're going to get sell down because all looking going to look bad. No, because obviously by August, we all realized that probably March, April was, was, was the bottom and we're all looking forward to recovery. Right? So we're all going to give a lot of companies the benefit of, of the recovery, basically, because we go, yeah, it's bad now, but they're going to do better. And I mean, as long as they're not called Sydney Airport or right? all the other ones were thinking like, oh, they actually do. And then, of course, the, the retailers were the big surprise in, in August because we had no idea how much people were going to spend while locked up in their rooms. Mm. And it turns out a lot. Mm. Right? We're all buying new sofas. All of a sudden, those were the big surprises. I mean, the big question mark, of course, then becomes how swift, how gradual, how quickly is that recovery going to happen? And is that already priced in in stocks? And the other thing was is, yes, those retailers and some of those technology stocks, they've, they've really got all their demand propped up and coming in, in, in condensed form much quicker to them. But is that is that representative of what was what is actually going to stay with them? And those are the question marks that, uh, that need to be, but they won't be answered until until February next year. Right? And in the meantime, um, we do now get the, the out of season reporters. And I'm in particular interested in the likes of uh, Zero, uh, Technology One, Aristocrat Leisure, and the banks. I mean, let's, let's see what the banks come up with, mm-hmm. um, apart from potentially not paying out a dividend again. Yeah, I've always thought that the next reporting season is actually going to be the one to watch out for because there were too many unknowns going into this reporting season that, to your point, analysts probably couldn't understand how far companies can push themselves. The impact of stimulus was still being felt, further stimulus to come through. Now we've kind of had the Victoria thing as well. I think more light will be shone on companies that are really battling in the next reporting season. It might actually that we have to wait until August next year together because we you see the government today again trying to do all and it may well be that we 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 only get a true picture by by august next year and of course between now and then the big question mark will be the vaccine i mean mm. if we have mm. one it will be it will make a tremendous change mm. if you don't have one there's a tremendous change the other way 
ride it while it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned there that August was actually a surprisingly good reporting season and that it's not because companies were growing per se, but it's because they beat expectations. So let's throw some specific names out there. What were some of the companies that you think, you know, can be labeled the biggest winners? Maybe some that, you know, beat expectations by the most. Let me put a side sideline because one, one, one thing I didn't mention earlier, and this is something that again came to the fore this reporting season. I think this is very, very important for investors who, who like to know what is actually happening in Australia. While this was the last one, while this was the best reporting season post-GFC, it did not show up in the top 50. And paying close attention to the reporting seasons year in, year out, this has now become a theme I would say at least since 2016, if not 2015. So we are not talking about a one-off. We are talking about now years. So for almost five years, the, yes. the top 50 ASX companies yes. have not pr- no. not beaten expectations. They're basically, really. they're basically pulling down the numbers. Yeah, right. right? Okay. Right? So the go. numbers would look better if it wasn't for the top 50. Yeah, right. right? And to make things worse... The top 50 also includes the likes of CSL, ResMed. Mm. I mean, these guys are actually amongst the very good performers. Yeah. Right? So it gets even worse for the ones who don't perform. Do you want to name right? and shame the worst of the worst <laughs> oh. in the top 50? <laughs> very, very easy to do. It's um, You have to think about the banks. Yeah. You have to think about, in this case, not BHP and Rio, because for the, uh, and for the student not, because Irono has yeah. really kept them up. But... Santos, Woodside, absolutely. I mean, dogs. I mean, can't catch a fly, right? <laughs> Even if they wanted to. The ones who don't perform, uh, Center Group, for example, Unibail, Rodamco, Westfield, all the, the shopping centers, uh, Australasia, big property firms, big mall owners, mm. very, very questionable performances from uh, the insurance companies, Suncorp, IAG, QBE. QB is no longer top 50, but used to be there. So plenty, right? Plenty. Property, <laughs> banks, resources, that's what Australians in, love. <laughs> in, in, but in particular, the energy sector. Yeah. In particular, the energy sector. I mean, in Australia, the best performing sector by far over the past two decades has been healthcare. Buy now, mm-hmm. pay later. No, no. That's, <laughs> that, that's, that's only very recently. But yeah. over the longer term, it's healthcare yeah. absolutely shoots a lot yeah. out here, right? And, and that's because we have some of the from the really, really fantastic companies in Australia. The worst sector by far has been the energy sector. Yeah. By far, yeah. but absolutely by far. Right? At one stage, Santos seemed destined for $20. I mean, it went to four. Yeah. <laughs> mm. right? Woodside, people, people are always surprised. You know, you know what the price at which Woodside peaked? No. $73. You know when that was? In May 2008. Right? Well. Today, it's not even $20. I know. I mean, it has hardly had made a comeback until half of that uh, of that share price. Yeah. Mm. So you can you can tell. I mean, and those are I mean, those those are the, the the big ones. I mean, and Origin Energy. I mean, it hasn't performed, and and those are I mean, and that's a lot of money went lost in those stocks. I've been banging on a little bit recently about an equal weighted ASX two hundred mm-hmm. uh, index ETF, and this seems to just be making my case even stronger. That if a market cap weighted ETF has those big names, you know, more weighted, yeah, then that's that's not good news at all. We need an equal weighted one. It's true, but it will all it will all depend on um, whether the banks perform or not, mm. and and you will find that uh, in Australia the banks still are such a of big importance 
that the market weighted will be the equal weighted when the banks are in, in favor again yeah. and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. So you really have to see it in, the, in that, co that correlation. That's why you have, always have to pay attention to the details when you see those things from, from the US. A lot of a lot of research from the US doesn't necessarily apply to Australia. Yeah. Like for example, a, a very a very easy one where people often go wrong is the the small caps in the US by far beat the the large caps all else being equal over over a longer period of times. Mm. Uh, the average uh, return in the US for small caps would be 15% a year on average, which is quite high. Yeah. Until you realize that what they call small caps yeah. in the US <laughs> would be are just under the top 50 stocks like REA Group and, and Westmed and stuff. Mm. I mean, those are the, their small cap stocks. Now. Yeah, there was a there was two weeks where we did back-to-back. -back. We interviewed an Australian small cap manager and then a US small cap manager. And the market cap they're talking about and the companies that they're talking about, completely different. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> the sweet spot in Australia is also one of those little little elements. The sweet spot in Australia is between, in the top 100, is between position number 51 and 100, yeah? So those 50, just outside the top 50, that's the sweet spot in Australia. And you realize those are the stocks that are the small caps in the US. Yeah. Yeah? And yeah. so there is a correlation there. Yeah? And those are the stocks, if you think about it. REA comes out of that. Uh, Cochlear comes out of that. They used to be top 50. They just grow out of that gradually. But they, they, they come out of that top, top 50. Afterpay Touch comes out of that group. Yeah? yeah, They don't stay there. They just grow out of it. Yeah, yeah? Yeah, just yeah. make sure that you don't pick them when they on their way down. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about some of the negative ones, but you know we want to be positive yes. because there were some good performers. So absolutely, absolutely. Before we move on to the, the next section, what were one or two that really caught your eye that surprised on the upside? Let me answer this in, in a general sense first. And this is also why I always say the narrative of the share market is wrong. Yeah. Because I focus very much on, on quality. So I run a portfolio which has, at face value, a lot of stocks that people would not consider buying. So there are stocks trading on, on elevated PE ratios, which people go, like, oh, but they're supposed to be expensive. Yeah? I always say they're not expensive at all. I mean, But for five years now, I see those stocks usually outperforming expectations in the reporting season and, and being rewarded for it after reporting season. The only periods when that doesn't happen is when the gap between the top end of the market and the bottom end of the market has has extended so much that it like there's like a, a limit to how, how far the elastic band can go and that happened uh, in august 2019 and it happened in, in august 2018 as well by the way and then we got we got a lot more it sort of happened this year as well but uh, in a little bit in a lesser sense. So we're basically talking about on, on, the, on the quality side, we're talking about companies like CSL, we're talking like an REA group, car sales, that type of company. And in the tech space, we're talking about uh, companies like, um, like an Altium and Appen and um, a Zero, although Zero hasn't reported and, and Altium actually did disappoint. Uh, but it happened absolutely did not disappoint. But I named these names because with the exception of now in August, the previous February or the previous August, they actually performed and continued performing. And that has been a trend which I have uh, witnessed pretty much every year. I mean, I remember very well in, in February 2018, goes back, all those stocks got sort of like sold off a little bit before February because everyone thought like, oh, they are too expensive. Mm. Yeah. And then in February, they all rallied by seven, eight, nine, ten percent on the day. Yeah? And I obviously at that point in time, I was I was very happy with myself that I stayed stayed <laughs> stayed loyal to the theme. Yeah. It also shows you that a price action doesn't always tell you the story. Yeah. 
it's a narrative that sometimes just permeates to the market and there's no other validity to it than everyone gets cautious. Yeah? So this year, what we've seen this year is that the, the companies that have performed really well in reporting season, and, and CSL was one of them, for example, they haven't necessarily, an REA group, and they haven't necessarily been rewarded for it because coming out of August, the market again concluded, oh, but the distance between the winners and the, and the, and the laggers is again, the elastic band is, we have to narrow this. Mm. Yeah. So those stocks didn't really get, and, and, and in, in the US, of course, we had uh, the big technology companies all of a sudden needed to come down. Yeah. When share prices double in a matter of days, uh, you know it's not normal. Yeah? Like, let's just keep it to that. Yeah. And so September was very much a month in which the top of the NASDAQ had to come down. That weighs on on stocks like, for example, an app in here, although they performed really well, in, they did really well with their result. But uh, market expectations probably a little bit bloated, plus NASDAQ sells off, so those stocks have to come off. Yeah? Again, to, to everyone's surprise, September hasn't really been kind to the cyclicals and the banks, yeah? because it's sort of like a, a, a mirror of 2018. Like first, it's the, it's the outperformers that have to pull back a little bit because it's a little bit too hot under the collar. But it, but it, it develops into a, a weakness for the weaker ones. Yeah? Mm. So as a value investor, you get punished twice. <laughs> <laughs> that is the frustration of a lot of value investors, by the way. So, Rudy, we're keen to get stuck into this conversation of quality. But before we do, we were looking through a presentation that you put together. And there was one thing that really caught our eye. You mentioned a grand debate between the fund managers Magellan and Platinum. Can you tell us what this grand debate is all about and where these two fund managers are butting heads? I'm going to give a little bit of an insight in my age here. I still remember when everyone thought that uh, Kerr Nielsen at Platinum Asset Management was was like a demigod, the the local Warren Buffett. Mm. Right? Today, nobody's paying attention to, to Platinum anymore. Mm. And that in itself shows us all that this time is different. It very much applies. I mean, things things are constantly moving. And the, 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 I mean, to go short on, on the theme, I always explain, and I thought that was, that's one of the themes I put at the back of my presentation because I thought like I'll catch everyone's attention. And this is if you want to know where, where things are going from here, well, there's basically two very polarized scenarios from here. Of course, we could, we, we could potentially talk about this for days, but uh, in, in the very short time frame that we have here, the reason why Magellan is one of the top fund managers in the world now and, and basically blows everyone out of the water in Australia is not because he's, he's, he's smarter than God. It's because he's on the right side of the pendulum in, in this particular point in time. And what do I mean by that is that 85% of the fund managers in Australia, not necessarily globally, but definitely in Australia, are value managers, right? Which basically means they buy into the narrative that as long as you buy them cheaply, you should be doing okay. They ignore a few things by doing that. And, and one of them is, is that that strategy works as long as conditions are normal. Normal, normal in the way that we knew them in the 80s, 90s in the first 10 years of this millennium, they're no longer normal. And then all of a sudden that strategy doesn't work anymore. To my surprise, I always thought that smart people worked in finance, but I've now found out that um, <laughs> many people are not that smart and they just stick by a narrative basically. And a lot of people actually got caught in that narrative and can't get out of it. So they can't change. And I do realize, and, and I mean, you guys are much younger than I am, but I do realize that one of the reasons why I can do what I'm doing is because I haven't been doing this for 40 years. 
And I can always imagine that if I had been doing this for 40 years, how difficult it had been for me to change with the changing times. Mm -hmm. yeah? I wrote my first book in 2515, which I published there. Yeah? And I thought at the time that I needed to be quick because I, I saw the times changing. Yeah? And you see it happening. And I thought, like, if I'm not going to be quick because everyone in finance will jump on this. And to my surprise, nobody jumped on that, or very, very few did. Right? I thought it was very obvious to see that things were going to change, and that would have an impact on the share market and how, how investing works. In a very uh, short summary, we push interest rates to all-time lows. We push as much money, liquidity, in the system as we can. We beat down inflation until there's no inflation left, and we, we have to basically be fighting deflation. So we're creating an incredible leverage in the system, and the system is itself very fragile, and we have much shorter cycles, and economic growth overall is at a, I wouldn't call it all-time low, but it's very low. If you combine all of that, that means that value investing all of a sudden has a very hard time. And why is that? Is because if you do research in the share market, and that's one of the things I've been emphasizing also, and I can't do that because I wasn't born here. I have no, I mean, I can say anything I like about Australian companies. Um, and also because I'm independent as well. But I always tell people, listen, you know that the majority of companies that are listed, they're not good companies, yeah? And in particular in Australia now. One of the characteristics that Australia had is that a lot of companies had a duopoly or a monopoly for a very long time. Yeah? That's a very good reason for, for, for a very subpar company to make good returns for shareholders, yeah? They're basically protected, mm -hmm. yeah? But since those duopolism, oligopolies, and monopolies have diluted, all of a sudden doesn't work anymore. Right? And you see those companies that are, used to be great Australians, I mean, AMP, Telstra, they have done nothing over the past two decades. So there's your value investing. Mediocre companies that have to adjust, that are being challenged, that uh, and can't do it anymore, basically. Now, that's not the only story to this. A very important factor is inflation, bond yields, and interest rates. So what a platinum and, and the whole cohort of, of value investors are counting on is that all the stimulus we're putting now through economies at some stage are going to trigger inflation. It's going to push bond yields higher. It's going to force central bankers to uh, raise interest rates instead of continuously lower them. And that all else being equal will favor those companies that haven't performed thus far. The insurance companies, the banks, the credit providers, uh, the buildings the companies, the resources companies, including the energy companies. So it's almost like a macro pendulum. But if it does swing, it will be incredibly savage. I've experienced the second half of 2016. It was savage. Right? My portfolio went down by 20% virtually overnight. And the rest of the market went up by 20%. So the difference is really, really savage. Mm. I mean, and you're looking at your portfolio and you go like, yeah, right. right? <laughs> and we've had that too. And it was savage at that time because I was convinced I was right and the market wasn't. And unfortunately, in the moment, there's nothing you can do about it. 12 months later, I was right, by the way. And the market wasn't. But if it happens again, so it can be very savage. So you have to be careful in extrapolating the technology revolutions that are, that are happening because they will be hit if that happens. Having said so, I don't think it's imminent, to be honest. And I know people are talking about it, but I don't think it's imminent. So the grand debate is, is the current situation where we find ourselves, low interest rates, low growth, low inflation, lots of stimulus, and, and basically no investments from, from companies and, and you name it, is that going to persist for longer? And, and I basically think the answer is yes. 
So you fall on the Hamish Douglas and Magellan side of the And pendulum. I'm on the Hamish Magellan. And, and you have to realize that that, that that is the reason why he's doing so well. I mean, mm. he's not convinced like the, like the value investors that, that this is temporary, right? Mm. And if you think about it, just, just to add to that argument, once you build so much debt in the system and you make money as cheap as it is, people are going to use it. I mean, like put 12 kids in a room and put some put some um, sugary stuff in, in the middle. I mean, no matter how well they're educated they are or uh, behaved, ultimately that, that, that the candy will get eaten, yeah? Mm. And that is the same with, with cheap, cheap money and lots of debt. Yeah? Yeah. On some calculations, percentage of zombie companies around the world mm. is approaching 17%. Yeah? That means it's, it's a little bit more than one in five, right? Zombie companies are companies who do not generate enough cash to pay, to pay the the, the 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 interest on their loan for three years yeah it's absolutely scary stuff it yeah? Is, yeah. but it makes you wonder how do we ever get out of this funk yeah it really does and i, I feel that's probably a whole other podcast <laughs> <Yes>. episode <laughs> <laughs> let's go from zombie companies to the opposite end of the market and talk about quality because you know that really is the name of this game that's how you know the warren buffett's and all of that of the world have have made their money they've found a few very uh, small number of companies and held them for a very long time you, in an email that you wrote to your FN Arena subscribers, wrote that a study that was done found that of all the share market gains since 1926, it can be explained by as little as 4% of the best performing stocks driving those gains. And, you know, people living through 2020 can think about a few companies driving share market returns, the Apples, Amazons, alphabets of the world. If such a small number of companies drive so much of the returns, then the question really becomes, how do you find those companies? And I guess that that ties into what we were talking about earlier. How do you think about quality and, and what is quality to you? Yeah. So I, I started defining quality as companies that, that, that's why I call them all weather stocks. I mean, companies that can perform for shareholders, irrespectively of whether whether interest rates go up or down, or the currency go up or down. And I mean, it's not to say that those companies sometimes can't have a bad year, or I mean, in, within within perspective. I mean, but they will perform. I mean, over time. My definition is that uh, a good company, unless there's like a like a meteor uh, coming to Earth or whatever, doesn't report like fifty percent drop in profits or anything along those lines. I mean, like that's that's not that's not quality. I mean. And if you start looking into the deeper elements of that, then you will find there's not too many companies around that can actually say that. Right? I think from memory, my, my selection of all weather stocks in Australia, I don't think it has ever uh, been more than 20. And even 20 is probably, uh, it's probably a little bit of a, of a stretch. We're not talking about a lot of companies. What I, what I think is equally important here is that those companies never trade on cheap multiples. Okay. Right. So you won't find them on a multiple of 12, yeah? yeah. and it's almost by definition. If they are on that multiple, it means that A, they're not a good company, <laughs> B, they're not discovered yet, which is very unlikely. Yeah. Uh, so, And this is one of the reasons why I, I started challenging the narrative that, that, that is in the share market all the time. Yeah. See, in my research, what, what didn't make sense to me is that, in, I mean, we're talking years and years, years ago, CSL was always trading on the multiple, let's call it 30, 28, whatever, yeah? And then people would say like, ooh, ooh, can't buy that, right? And then other people would call it defensive. And I thought like, how can it be defensive when it's on a high PE? And then a year later, the share price was up to 30% or so. And you go like, 
okay, one-off, right? But a year later, it was again up 20%. Yeah? You go like, well, something doesn't match up here, right? Because the stocks that are supposedly cheap, they just became cheaper, or they have like one good year or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the stocks that you possibly can't buy, and they look like really good companies to me, then they perform. And they are the ones who continuously make make uh, their inroads in the index as well. CSL, I predicted years in advance, is going to be the number one stock in the index. Mm -hmm. You see it happening, you see it coming. Yeah? And to my surprise, nobody owned it. Yeah? If you go back four or five years, nobody owned it. Yeah? Everyone would go like, nah, can't buy that one. It's not high PE. You go like, and? <laughs> What's your problem? Well, even this reporting season, the articles written about CSL were like, it's an unbelievable company. It's got such a long pipeline. It's investments in R&D are paying off, but it's too expensive to yeah. buy. And it's like, well, yeah, if that's yes. the only negative thing you can say about it. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. But to give you an example of, of what, what very much adds to the to the quality uh, brand mark, because um, by analyzing CSL, I learned a lot from what actually makes good companies. Because I think CSL is probably the number one company we have in Australia. I mean, on many accounts. I mean, and very, a very easy measure I've developed over the years is uh, there's this narrative in Australia that Australian companies can't go overseas. I mean, they, they suck at it, basically. Mm. I say, well, in general terms, that's correct, because most Australian companies are not good companies. Eh? So if they go overseas, they just get I mean, put, put back in their box. But the good companies you have, they succeed overseas, yeah. yeah. And you shouldn't look further. I mean, the CSLs, the Cochleas, the Westmets—they are number one in their market globally. Yeah. Right? They have competition on in many markets every single day. Right? The fact that they can keep their position there, right? and these guys are market leaders in their field, gives you already an indication how I mean how much what what is a quality stock. Yeah? What Australian investors also underestimate is that those companies. Like CSL, for example, spends close to a billion dollars every year on research and development. One billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah? They could, if they decided, they could pay out in dividends. Yeah. Yeah? But they don't do that. And every year they spend that, that about between 10 and 12% of their revenue on research and development. If you read international studies, right? That that's what those companies do. Yeah, the ones who who stay on top for longer yeah. and sometimes for decades. There's no guarantees because you still have to generate a return and you still have to create new products and have success and stuff like that. But that's the the, the step that you can't skip. Yeah, yeah? and 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 I mentioned uh, AMP and 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 Telstra earlier. These guys didn't spend any anything near that, and they just paid out to shareholders and just kept kept hobbling along as long as they could and ultimately the share price deflates right, instead of going up right and i think the fact that that you make consistent investments year in year out and after a while obviously you become experts in what you do with that money and you you start generating a product portfolio that continuously innovates and continuously innovates again and and again because at the end of the day it's about finding growth I mean, growth is not some you, growth. You can have it, but the the good business leader looks forward and thinks like, well, this growth can't be taken for granted. You have to find additional growth. And if you look at the history, for example, of of, of, a, of a CSL, I mean, the fact that at one stage they added the Securus business, which is the, the virus uh, uh, 
um, another another growth engine to to already a fantastic business. Yeah, so it's about finding growth and and keeping that keeping that pendulum going. I mean, because our comp there are examples of companies that that once upon a time were leaders and lost their way. Right, it's possible. Right, yeah. but what I've learned is that. Because valuation is something that's very, very short-term focused. You happily pay over for for quality business because you can trust if the, it's a quality business, the share price will take care of itself. Yeah, mm. yeah. They say the same thing about Amazon. You know, like all through its growth story, it traded at a PE of call it yeah. sixty, and well, exactly. so many people were short it yeah. just because of its valuation, yeah. Yeah. but it just kept kept growing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's 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 nothing as easy. And that's what what they do, of course. Nothing as easy as go, going short a stock that looks bloated, mm -hmm. and then and then obviously you lose your pants. Yeah, yeah. Afterpay. <laughs> Goodman Group. <laughs> hey, well, you know, if a sign of a good Australian company is it goes overseas and it succeeds, well, Afterpay is overseas. Yet to be seen if it's going to succeed, but. You might be right, Bryce. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rudy, uh, to close out the convo on quality, um, you have mentioned a couple of indicators as to what a poor quality company looks looks like, which I think is equally as important as understanding what a good quality company looks like. Are there any more considerations or red flags that we should think about when, I guess, trying to avoid these poorer quality companies? I recently read a book which is um, uh, Good to Great, which, which is a book which was published in 2001, mind you. And to my astonishment, there were quite a few things that came to the fore from that book where you go like, it's so easy to recognize those things, yeah? Because that book tells the readers the difference between a, a great company and a, and a mediocre company is they have access to the same information. They just respond to it differently. Mm. And he had, in the book, there are clear examples of businesses that basically refuse to change because one of them uses as an example, you can't you can't argue with 80 years of success. Yeah? So they kept doing what, what worked for 80 years and then 10 years later they were out of business. Yeah? It's come to the fact that you, you can recognize from the onset how is a business responding to challenges. And if they just bunker in and hope for the best, that's not a great strategy. Yeah? So you, you already know, I mean, like, I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to piss down on Telstra all the time, but <laughs> but I've followed Telstra for two decades now. These guys have 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 bought businesses in the U.S. Yeah, and two three years later, you hear nothing about them anymore. They've closed down, they've sold it, whatever. So obviously, nothing works. Yeah, if you try to distance yourself from the fact that you own the shares and you're dependent on their on their on their uh, on their payout twice a year. You should be able to just sit from your sofa at home and think like, well, that's not a good business. Yeah? When you buy stuff, it should add to growth, not disappear in the, in the ether and nobody talks about it anymore. That's just one of the things. The other thing which was, came very much to the fore in the US, and it is very much a, uh, an idea there, is, the, is whether you have a so-called um, very famous CEO, who a glamour CEO, who basically takes all the attention to himself and acts for his own bank account, not necessarily in, in, in shareholders' interest. Australia has many companies, I believe, that are being run for the major shareholder, not so much for the minority shareholders. Harvey Norman, Crown, uh, uh, there's a few other ones, I mean, uh, News Corp. Huh? <laughs> um, see, I, I never go anywhere near those companies, yeah, because I know I'll, I'll be third-rank citizen, I mean, even with my small stake in particular. I mean. Again, it is also when you have the choice between am I going to invest in the business 
or am I going to please the shareholders in the short term and just pay out a little bit more? Again, one of the conclusions of August this year was Australian companies choose for the second option. Yeah? Well, arguably, they should go for the first because a lot of businesses are challenged. Yeah? If you don't keep the cash to yourself and you can explain to shareholders that, guys, this is a crisis, we need the money, we need to invest, we need to reinvent the business, then you will never be able to, but it also means you will always be a mediocre business. It will never be great. And I think those are things that everyone from his sofa can can uh, can analyze and can see. Mm. I know we're running short on time, but my ears picked up when you said those three businesses, Harvey Norman, Crown and News Corp, who all have their owners and their founders as major shareholders. And that seems to cut against, you know, what you often hear in the smaller end of the market where businesses that have owner operators that are large shareholders and are running the company is often a good sign. Where on the growth scale does it change from being a really good sign to being a really bad sign? I'm not so sure whether it's whether it's a growth scale. I think it's the way, and that's why you have to watch how those businesses are being managed. Yeah, Good to, good to great, for example, we, we, talk, we spoke about investments earlier, also says that when businesses steer away from their core competency, that's not that's a, that's a warning sign. That's not good. Yeah, Harvey Norman, for example, they've used shareholders' money to to buy into dairies and 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 other fancy stuff. Yeah, that's not stuff that should be. If he wants to do that, he just should do it with his own money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not with the shareholders' money. See, yeah. those are warning signals. Yeah, and and you so often see it with smaller companies as well. If a board is only there to just just to be filled up with yes men and always say yes to the to the guy who wants the business. Mm -hmm. That's not a great board. Yeah. Yeah? That's also, again, that's a warning signal again. And some of those businesses have that type of boards. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, it's now coming to the fore again with, with Crown, for example. I mean, that everyone is just barring to the major shareholder. I mean, that's not a great business. Yeah, Like the great businesses, I'm, I'm pretty certain they have I mean, toe-to-toe -to -toe fights over a, a certain investment that needs to be made or not. Yeah. Right? And that's what make makes a great business. The other ones don't. Yeah. Mm. So, Rudy, we've taken over an hour of your time uh, and we want to say thank you for coming on. I think it's been a great conversation and I'm sure if uh, Bryce didn't have the stopwatch over here, we could have gone down a number <laughs> of rabbit holes. <laughs> so I think we'll have to get you on another time and we can go down some of those rabbit holes in due course. But before we do, we do like to finish with the same final three questions. So we'll get stuck into them. But just a reminder for people, fnarena.com, tell Rudy that Equity Mate sent you, you get a month free. How could you not after this conversation? <laughs> the final three questions. The first one we like to ask, do you have any must-read books? Oh, yes, I have all lists. I'll leave the list for you guys here. Nice. So you, can, you can use them after the program. But yeah, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll include them in our show notes for this exactly, episode as well. Exactly. If I, if I just go very quickly to them, for typical investment books, I think everyone should start with A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Melkiel. Great book. It also explains to you that a technical analyst doesn't work. <laughs> and we go a little bit more left field now. Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, oh, yeah. Edwin Lefebvre. Very classic. The more you know about the share market yourself, the more you appreciate the book. It's one of those books that you, you can, you can reread through yeah. your career and, and every time get more out of it. Then there is Confusion de Confusiones which is one of the first books about the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, which was the first one in the world. 
Um, that one you can you can probably just download. You can probably find on the internet and download it. There's no copyrights on that one anymore. And what I found interesting by that one is how much it resembles today. I mean, people are people. I mean, we go short, we spread rumors, we, I mean, we do all the stupid things. Then there was an Australian author, uh, Michael Kemp, who wrote a book, Uncommon Sense, which from two years ago, he basically goes hundreds of pages explaining why things don't work, including PE ratios and all of that. Then, from, then there was uh, James Montier, uh, who wrote The Little Book of Behavioral Investing. Very good to figure out why we make the same mistakes we always make, because we're human. An American book, I picked one, Dividends Still Don't Lie by Kelly Wright. It's particularly good because it's, because it's a U.S. book, and it emphasizes the, the importance of, of, of dividends from a U.S. perspective, and they pay a lot less mm. than, than we do here. And then uh, finally, and I'm a little bit biased here because I do know Danielle Ikuyer, and I know she was in this program for a yeah, while. And, sh and, and share publicity is definitely uh, something that uh, investors can, for the simple reason that it doesn't do what a lot of people do and try to go like you have to, you have to analyze the balance sheet and all of that. Yeah, um, yeah. You don't. And then there's a few books that I think I think you shouldn't you shouldn't stick to just investment books. So I would I would add Good to Great by Jim Collins just to show you what a good business looks like. Then there is The Trick by William Leith essentially journalists who interview successful people and try to find out what made them successful. There is Thinking Fast and Slow by yeah. Daniel Kahneman. Uh, absolutely, I found it actually fascinating. Then there is The Ascent of Money by Niall Ferguson. And finally, Liar Spoke by Michael Lewis, if you want to know how, what the 80s looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, there's, and there's many other books from Michael Lewis, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I'll happily leave the, the list here. Nice one. So we've got that list. We'll include that in the show notes so people can check them all out. The second question we like to ask, now, aside from FN Arena, what's your go-to source for investing in financial information? Oh, that's a good one. See, I, I'm privileged here. I have access to a hell of a lot of uh, research, like global research and read as much as I can. And I've, I've particularly in the first 10 years in Australia, I read as much as I, I could. I also thought I need to, because if I'm the editor and I'm, if I'm telling people um, what's going to happen, I need to know a few things. And so I basically read everything I can, I can get my hands on from what is actually happening in, in credit markets to what liquidity does to where, where is inflation gone? How do you value a modern day uh, technology company and all of that? I don't think there's, there's, there's any services in particular out there that give me that information. Mm -hmm. What I tend to do, I do subscribe to a few services every once in a while that uh, give me a completely different perspective, do completely different things than, than I'm looking at. And that's just sometimes to give me a different perspective on yeah. things. Um, but in general terms, um, I mean, I can't get past FNRI. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Final question. If you, you know, you think back to your early days when you were earning 15% interest in the bank, what advice would you have for your younger self? Invest in yourself. Don't give up just because things are not working out in the moment. If you keep on investing in yourself, you will get there where you want to come or where you want to be. And I think that's that's essentially what, what has happened in my life. I mean, I would have never imagined when I was nine that I would end up um, in a studio with two guys in Sydney <laughs> um, three decades later yeah. uh, talking, decades, about, talking, talking about the Australian share market. Yeah. <laughs> See, the funny thing is when I arrived in Australia in the year 2000, yeah, I knew five Australian companies, yeah, five. 
And and ten years later, I was telling people why they were doing things wrong in in investing in the share market. And mm -hmm. that's how quickly you can make your evolution by basically investing in yourself. And in my case, by right. Uh, spending an inordinate amount of of time in reading and and reading up on things and 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 challenging challenging the narrative as well, not just accepting that right because it's cheap, it's going to be a good investment. Right? Turns out, often it's not. Mm. Well, Rudy, it's been awesome having you on the show. You are on Twitter as well, so I suggest that our audience follow you for some up to date insight from the work that you're doing, but also head across to fnarena.com for more in-depth analysis of some of the stuff that we've been talking about today. So really appreciate you coming on and I'm sure it won't be the last time Alex got a lot of things to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, again, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, guys. Thanks, Rudy. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 